This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. Today, many employees are feeling drained, stressed, and undervalued. These could be signs that they are working in toxic workplaces. HR and wellness professionals need to understand the signs of toxic work environments and transform their workplaces into cultures that support employee well-being. In today's podcast, we speak with Jessica Childress, the managing attorney and founder of Childress firm PLLC, an employment law firm based in Washington, D.C., that represents clients in all aspects of employment law. Jessica is also the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Peace, Leaving a Toxic Workplace on Your Own Terms, which will be released on January 31, 2024. And she has also been featured in numerous publications, including Forbes, Essence, The Huffington Post, Success, and Entrepreneur. Jessica, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's an honor to be here. So let's start out with the most basic question of all. How do you define a toxic workplace? So a toxic workplace is one where you have a degradation in culture. You have fighting. You, there's intimidation, bullying. And people generally don't feel a sense of psychological safety working there. So these can be petty slights. There doesn't have to be overt intimidation. It can really be micromanaging. It can be being left off of work nails if you're an individual working on a team. So toxic workplaces, they typically develop over a course of time. Uh, typically, they are the result of a breakdown in communication uh, between or amongst employees. But I define toxic workplace differently than I would define a hostile workplace, which has a legal definition, which we mm. can talk about more uh, okay. further down or later in the show. Okay. Uh, what I heard implicitly is it's a lot of interpersonal um, challenges, stress. Uh, does it also include policies? It can certainly include policies or really a lack of following policies. Uh, typically, hmm. policies are created with the intention of creating a sense of safety for employees. I've represented corporations. I started my career representing solely corporations, and I drafted many employment policies and employment handbooks uh, during the course of my career. And I never drafted a policy with the expectation that it would harm an employee. So I think it's the lack of a consistent of, of consistently following policies uh, that can create a toxic workplace. Uh, there can also just be a general lack of understanding of what policies exist. So one way to ensure that you do have a healthy workplace that maintains and ensures psychological safety and well-being for all employees is just to make sure that all employees understand how to uh, access policies, number one, uh, that they're trained on workplace policies, and that those policies are distributed and accessible to all employees. What do toxic workplaces, as you've defined them, do to hurt uh, employees, but also employers? So a toxic workplace, no one wants to go into a place where they don't feel safe, and that includes home, a workplace, 
uh, being around a group of people in your personal life in which you don't feel safe. So the same principle applies at work. When you don't feel safe, when you feel like you're in a toxic workplace where you're undervalued, where you're feeling stressed or feeling afraid, mm -hmm. you're not going to produce. And the purpose of going into work, the purpose of the, the reason why you're employed is to produce an outcome and a result for your employer. Whether right. you're in the customer service industry or uh, the medical industry, whether you're a professional or a service worker, you are certainly supposed to be producing a result. So in terms of how a toxic workplace hurts an employer, if their workforce is enduring a toxic workplace, it makes everyone feel uncomfortable. I know as a bystander, I did, would not want to, uh, I, I feel very uncomfortable working beside someone who's enduring a toxic workplace because I would feel afraid for that person. So it hurts bystanders, it hurts the victim of the toxic workplace because they're, they could feel uh, stressed, they could feel depressed, they could suffer from um, mental health disorders because of the toxic workplace. They could suffer from burnout. Uh, there are cancers associated with working in a toxic workplace. And so there are a host of wellness issues mentally and physically that uh, affect people working in toxic workplaces. Uh, the Surgeon General issued a report noting that one out of five people uh, experience a toxic workplace. And so this is a, it's a rampant issue, but mm -hmm. it affects both employers and employees. It's a, this is a, there are detrimental effects for both employers and employees. Uh, the employee effects, I think, are pretty obvious right. in the sense that you can't produce when you're afraid. But for employers, the lack of productivity the attrition that, is, that accompanies toxic workplaces, it's very well documented that when you're working in a toxic workplace, you have a higher rate of attrition, a higher rate of turnover, and also you face legal risk if you are maintaining a toxic workplace. So a toxic workplace can quickly turn into a hostile workplace if that toxicity is related to a legally protected class. And right. so there are their business reasons uh, from for the bottom line purposes for which you should maintain a healthy workplace but from a risk management standpoint employers should ensure that their workplaces are healthy a little bit more on the the legal risks and i'm going to bring this back to your book which you know implicitly uh well it's it's explicitly written for employees that find themselves in toxic workplaces and as the subtitle suggests leaving one on your own terms and you're a lawyer, and you know I want employers and HR people that are listening to this to understand what's really at stake, because it sounds like this could be a potentially obvious fixable thing that could come and cause big problems for you, or it might be more pockets of it in a larger organization that could still have very serious legal hazards for employers. Uh, but maybe you could sort of bridge this with what you're finding and uh, what you advise people in your book and what employers might take note of to really understand what's at stake here for a company. So over uh, 19,000 EEOC cases were filed against employers from 2018 to 2021. So the issue uh, show the, the issue of litigation, the uh, it, the real the reality of litigation is very real for employers who are maintaining toxic workplaces. So employers who don't understand uh, how to protect their employees' legal rights, 
they're certainly at risk of litigation. And so in my book, I discuss what the laws are uh, so that employees can understand how to distinguish between a toxic workplace and then an unlawful workplace. Okay. And there are many, many uh, labor laws that, uh, that apply in the workplace, obviously. We have OSHA, we have the National Labor Relations Act. So it's important that employers understand what those laws are. What are you seeing or what would you take note of um, as far as the employer's reputation, right? We, we've got uh, sites like Glassdoor and, you know, even if something doesn't rise to a legal challenge, this could make its way out into the public uh, uh, dialogue, if you will, for potential employees that are already, that may want to work at the company. And what have you seen with regard to employer reputation? So, employ as you mentioned, employees are certainly free to voice their opinions about their employers online. There is an act called the National Labor Relations Act, and typically the National Labor Relations Act at one point only applied to unions. Uh, there is a provision, however, it's called Section 7A that relates to concerted activity. And so employees are able are allowed to engage in concerted activity, and that means they're allowed to discuss their workplace conditions mm-hmm. without fear of retaliation mm-hmm. or without being legally allowed to retaliate. And so employees are certainly utilizing that right. They are able to go online without it and talk about their workplace conditions. They're allowed to complain mm-hmm. about their employee employment and their employers. And those complaints are obviously, if if an employee has a public profile, those complaints are public. And so reputationally, employers have an incentive to make sure that employees are happy because in terms of recruitment, in terms of other opportunities that employers have, an employer doesn't want a bad rap based on their toxic workplace. And employees, and now more than ever, we're able to share information in terms of any complaint that's filed against an employer, that is often in the public domain. Right. And so with the fast pace of social media, with the fast with the way that information spreads, employers do have an incentive to make sure that they are maintaining workplaces that are not toxic and where employees feel a sense of psychological safety. What are some of the trends you're seeing in the last few years? Uh, we, you know, we, have been talking, all of us have been talking about COVID and its, you know, uh, uh, its rise and duration and, you know, it's hopefully behind us now, but we're in this interesting moment. And I'm, so I don't want to make it all about post-COVID, but just generally speaking in, you know, 2023, what are some of the toxic workplace trends, meaning, you know, the types of complaints you're seeing, the, uh, uh, just anything that you're seeing that uh, gives us an idea of the patterns that are emerging out there? Between 2018 and 2021, 19,000 cases were filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. In 2018, I believe that is the a year that the Bostic case came out, in which that protects uh, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation. That is no longer you can no longer discriminate against someone on the basis of sexual orientation on a federal level. So I live and work here in Washington, D.C., and uh, sexual orientation and gender identity have been long protected in D.C., but on Mm -hmm. the federal level, that protected category, those protected categories just became protected uh, relatively relatively recently. Mm -hmm. And so there are certainly more cases being heard 
and actually uh, lawsuits being filed based on uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. It's now a protected category. And so I think that in 2020, we just saw a ton of activism. Uh, We saw uh, people standing up uh, for their rights. And I I think that the advent of the Bostick case, uh, making sure that we have more protections on a federal level, uh, with the uh, with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, I do feel like there has just been a number of. Uh, I think this activism has certainly increased uh, in 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 workplaces, and so it's really really time. And I think employers should make sure that they are really putting a pulse on the climate, uh, really really taking a t- the temperature of their workplace climate to ensure that all employees do feel safe at work. What, what have you seen as um, the role of frontline managers in uh, workplaces uh, that are either uh, healthy versus toxic? Um, in our research, we found, and we've talked to a lot of HR directors and wellness professionals, and getting frontline managers on board with workplace wellness or well-being initiatives sometimes is one of their top three challenges. And I can't help but think that has a role in all of this. But what have you observed? I always say that leadership matters. You have to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I think it's really, really important that leaders are setting an example and creating the culture of the organization. It's really, it should be a top-down approach to workplace wellness. And so I think when a manager is stepping up, is making sure that their team is engaging in team building exercises, uh, that really does make, that really, creates the tone for the organization and for the team. So frontline managers are critical to creating healthier workplaces. Uh, In terms, I I offer training on respectful workplaces. So when a manager participates in that training with their employees, and when they actually are learning from their employees and implementing the practices that I teach, I think that that changes, that gives employees an understanding of what's important to their manager. And when an employee understands that a manager is being intentional about learning the workplace, understanding the employees with whom they work, that really does shift culture. And it creates the, the psychological safety that I've been talking about. where employees feel that their managers are actually, they care about the health of the organization. So that does make a huge difference, Steve. Let's talk about what listeners can actually do uh, to follow a process. We're talking about what toxic workplaces look like, the risks involved. Now, how do you go take action and assess your own workplace and, and fix challenges or problems that may be there? Yeah, so it's really important uh, uh, employers have an obligation to investigate any complaints of misconduct in the workplace. And so I, I actually do internal investigations for companies and organizations. So it's important that any complaint is investigated. That, that shows that the complaint process, it's not, in, it's, it's not just a, a sentence on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. that employers really do take uh, investigations and any reports of misconduct seriously. So organizations should certainly uh, ensure that they understand how to conduct an investigation, that they have the infrastructure if you're a smaller organization or if you're a larger company, that you have the infrastructure in place to conduct a workplace investigation if there ever is an allegation of misconduct. 
they should also make sure that they have even a small or large a workplace wellness program uh, making sure that employees are able to prioritize their mental and physical health because again if you are not mentally and physically healthy that's going to lead to uh, more sick days it's going to lead to more time off it's going to affect productivity in the bottom line of your company they should also train their employees on how to create a respectful workplace culture so we often go through and i i do deliver anti-harassment and anti-discrimination trainings in my trainings, I try to make sure that employees understand that you know this is the law. I have to train on the law. The law creates a very high standard for uh, sexual harassment claims, for discrimination claims, for race discrimination claims. But we want to do more than what the law requires. We want to go beyond the legal standard in executing a healthy workplace and, and maintaining and creating a healthy workplace. So I, I note in my training that this is what the law requires, but your company should require more. And so hmm. training on not just what the law requires, but also what your company's values are. So everyone should have an understanding of what their company's values are, and one of those values should certainly be workplace respect. And in all communications and all interactions with your employees, you should understand how to demonstrate respect for those employees. So those are just a few ways that mm-hmm. companies can actively and intentionally create safer workplaces. I think when you use or put respect at the core of your, uh, at the core, as, when you make respect a core value, it's really hard to breed a toxic workplace when mm. you are constantly trying to uh, enforce respect as a core value when you're iterating on what respect means to your organization. I think you really just can't, a a toxic work environment really cannot fester there. It's one thing for an HR director or a wellness director to hear what we're talking about and then go out, you know, and try to observe uh, the situation. But it seems like a lot of it, you need a feedback loop. You need to hear from your workforce uh, about areas you may not even observe. But just, I'd like to know what you think about the role of um, listening, uh, assessing, uh, involving your workforce, and, and also letting them, you know, sending the signal that you take this seriously. I think it's critical to listen to your workforce because managers are often disconnected from their, from the people that report to them. The C-suite is often disconnected sure. from the, the employees who are outside of the C-suite. So having an active feedback loop, having 360 reviews, having uh, trainings in which you're actually in workshops in which you're actually learning from your employees, I think that's really the best source of information as to how your workforce is feeling about the workplace. I think it can give you some red flags that you you should look out for and address immediately if there are any problems. Uh, But listening is important and employers need to hold Space and create space for employees to to provide to provide their feedback and to listen actively. And so it's not just about you know my door is always open. Of course, that's it's nice to hear that right. from your managers and from your supervisors. But it's hard to speak up about something that is bothering you at work. And I'm an advocate. And even when I was working in corporate law, it was very difficult for me to ever express if something was 
uh, not comfortable for me, even though I was a trained advocate. And so I, I don't expect, and, and I think it's very hard uh, from, you know, knowing this from my practice of over 11 years practicing employment law, it's hard for people to speak up. And so I think it's important that employers have intentional space for employees to talk about their concerns. And mm -hmm. then I think it's important for employers to then go back and say, hey, we did something. This is what we did so that employees, employees understand that any complaints or reports that they made were not in vain. I would assume this is not something it's once and done. That's right. It has to, you have to continue the process. It can't be annual training that we have to you know check the box and do annual training on and discrimination and harassment training that's the most common type of compliance training that a company does but we can't just do that training and then say we'll see you next year there right. should be space and i understand that we're all under time constraints and it's hard to take time to develop some of these softer skills in the workplace we're you know fast fast moving society but as we mentioned earlier, Steve, these, if we don't do this, this is where toxic workplaces can fester. And this is when you do get into the complaints for litigation. Uh, this is what right. happens when you allow uh, a workplace to, uh, you know, have, uh, have un or have a level of toxicity that goes unchecked. Uh, you've worked with a lot of uh, employers and uh, employees, but can you, in, without naming a company, but do you have an example, uh, you know, a case study, if you will, uh, about a company that took this issue seriously, did something about it, and what it looks like, you know, as far as being successful? Sure, I'll just take a trend. I think that companies that are training, I think they have better workplace cultures. Uh, companies that actually have training that doesn't just check the box and that holds space for uh, for employees to talk about their any concerns that they have. So going beyond just the you know diversity uh, or the inclusion training that uh, can be sometimes rote, uh, but going beyond the anti-discrimination training, but really getting to the core of you know how people want to be respected at work. I think that that particular, those companies that are actually holding space for their employees to talk about their individuality, uh, what are their triggers in the workplace? You know, what are things that they, how do they want to be respected at work? How do they want to be communicated with at work? I think those particular companies have better outcomes. I think that their productivity increases. Um, I've done a training with a company, I did a training with a company and we found that after uh, after employees expressed how they wanted to be respected at work, they felt like their productivity overwhelmingly increased. They felt that their environments became more inclusive. And so holding space that's intentional and that employees feel like they can talk openly and honestly about their workplace concerns, those are, I think that's an employer success story. Is there anything generational in this, um, this topic? Are younger workers bringing different expectations to work around this than, you know, middle-aged workers? Just trying to understand because, you know, times change, expectations change. I'm just wondering what you observe out there. Well, there's research, and I haven't done a study myself on the generational differences, but there is research that Generation Z, they're expecting more from their employers. 
Uh, they are, you know, they're coming up in an environment that in which technology and the ability to reach out to new employers and to uh, have a, to be engaged in the gig economy is uh, is very much uh, commonplace. And so the mobility allowed for Generation Z and millennials, I think that that is very, very different uh, than other than for other generations. Um, it's the understanding of how to obtain a new job the expectations of balance, of workplace wellness and balance. I think that's an expectation for Generation Z and to some extent millennials. And so there's research out there that shows the Generation Z absolutely wants to have a sense of balance. And and that balance does not include working, you know, 90 hours a week. And so it's important that we do take into account the fact that the expectations of uh, of other generations are that are beyond Gen Z or that are older right. than Gen Z uh, are not. They're just not the same expectations for the workplace. What prompted you to write the book, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, Steve, we have so much information. There's so much information for employers on how to create more inclusive workplaces, on how to train employees on uh, reporting discrimination and harassment, how to investigate claims of discrimination and harassment, uh, how to create healthier workplaces. But I think there needs to be a resource for employees who are enduring toxic workplaces and who may not know where to start. There's just an information imbalance. And no one wants to, I, I don't think anyone would encourage someone in an unhealthy relationship to stay there forever with no resources. And employment relationships can become unhealthy. I, I think of employment like a marriage. You know, you might start off great, but over time, it, there are going to be inevitable challenges just because you're working with people, you're going to experience conflict. And sometimes that conflict really does become unbearable. And so I don't think that any person should have to stay in an organization or a company where they feel like they are enduring toxicity every day. And so that's why I wanted to create a resource for employees to understand where to start. What are some questions that I should be asking? So over the course of I've been representing both employers and employees for the last seven years. And so I noticed trends and questions that were being asked. And so I wanted to create a guide that was accessible and that was easy for employees who are enduring a toxic workplace so that they had a starting point. And I definitely encourage employees to seek out an employment attorney if you are enduring a toxic work environment. But I think that it's important that employees understand their rights so that if something is being violated, if a right is being violated, they can then let their employers know. And I think that when employees can also hold their employers accountable, I think this will inevitably create better and safer workplaces for everyone. Um, you're going to provide some resources to listeners that I'll be including uh, in the show notes for this podcast. Can you tell people uh, how, to, how to get a hold of you and what you'd like to share with them? And we'll certainly be putting that up online. Excellent. Yes, Steve, no problem. So you can get a hold of me. at I'm on LinkedIn at Jessica Childress. I'm also on Instagram at The Childress Firm. Uh, you can also visit my website at thechildressfirm.com. And my contact information is on my website. 
I'll also be providing a free e-course called the Intro Respection e-course. And this is an assessment tool that allows employees to determine how they like to be respected at work. This is a training program that I offer to companies and employees. They take an assessment tool. It weights how they view various aspects of workplace respect hmm. so that they can share with their colleagues. This is how I feel respected. These are the things in the workplace that bother me. And so it's a great way to hold that intentional space as I discussed earlier, but there's an e-course that includes the intro reception assessment tool as well as a textbook. So it's a great tool for supervisors and employees mm. to use to discuss with each other how they'd like to be respected at work. And so I will provide a link to that e-course so any of your listeners can access that for free. What's your final closing call to action for listeners and you know and it sounds like your your book while um aimed at employees could be very instructive for 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 managers uh, or at least the people putting programs together at the hr level but uh, what's your, what's your final you know, sort of uh, call to action knowledge is power the more that we know about our workplace rights the more that employees know the more that more that employers know the better because I don't think that anyone intends to violate rights. I think that it's, 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 it's very, I think I'd like to see the best in people. And I, I think it's very rare that we intend to violate rights. And so a lot of violations come because we just don't know. And so the knowledge is so important. It's important to know your workplace rights. It's important for employers to know their obligations. And then it's also important for employers to know their employees, know what your employees need, and ask the questions uh, that you need to ask to make your workplace healthy. Jessica, uh, thank you for being here today and sharing your experience and uh, the resources we'll be sharing with the audience. And uh, good luck to you on uh, the launch of your book here in a few months. Thank you so much, Steve. It was a pleasure to speak with you this morning. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.